Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. If we only get tomorrow once, and if you had to do it over again, how would you live tomorrow differently? Well, maybe we could decide to live it as an optimistic citizen decide to live it as somebody who isn't going to become obsessed with what the media wants us to know about, but is going to realize there are five or 10 or 50, or in my case, a million people who we get to talk to. What should we say to them? Hi, I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired up life. Here, we will continue my 10-year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection, more awakeness, less consuming, less loneliness, and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. My guest in this episode is Seth Godin. Oh, hi, it's Seth. Seth Godin is a lot of things. He's a marketing guru, a dad, and a serial entrepreneur who says he's founded dozens of businesses that failed, then sold one of them to Yahoo for 30 million US. He's published 19 best-selling books, and the guy blogs every single day. He's introduced terms such as permission marketing, linchpins, and purple cows into pop lexicon. As a teacher, he throws a bomb under traditional leadership training with his Alt-MBA program. In fact, he's thrown bombs under a lot of assumed stale thinking, including my own. A decade ago, he shook my world with an idea that went on to be the guiding principle in my whole I Quit Sugar business journey, the launching of it, running it, and then closing it and giving everything to charity. It actually remains one of the wildest ideas I've ever lived to. So I figured it might be interesting to revisit it with Seth 10 years later and apply it to the crazy stuff we're confronting today. He joined me from his home in New York in his afternoon and my morning. And now you're in the middle of the screen, which is much less distracting. Seth is characteristically straight up and very clear And he corrects me more than once on some of my nervous and over-enthused thinking, which I kind of love. So I'm just wanting to ask... I I just want to interrupt Yeah, correct me, please. I started by reminding Seth about the first time we connected. 
I don't know if you recall, we actually first spoke uh, 10 and a half years ago. I think it was April 2010. So we're coming up for almost 11 years. And it was a really interesting uh, interview. And since then, I've been asked by lots of people at various conferences and public talks, who's the most inspiring, legit kind of spokesperson voice out there that you've spoken to of the hundreds that I've interviewed over the years. And I've always said Seth Godin. And this is it's, it's a true story. It is an absolute true story. And look, when I spoke to you on the phone, you interrupted and said, look, I'd committed to doing homework with my children this evening and I always do this and I'll have to go and do it. 20 minutes later, you actually called back and said, hey, he was really quick with his homework, let's go. And that to me said so much about, I hate to use the word authenticity because I know you pull that apart in your latest book, um, <laughs> but, you know, you were legit. You were a legit operator and I totally respected that. But then it gets better because many years later I'm telling this story on a stage, somebody listens, they write to you and say, look, this woman called Sarah Wilson was talking about how legit you are. I want to thank you for being that person in her life, in our lives. You then wrote me an email out of the blue. You wrote, thank you for leading, for making a difference, for your th- philanthropy, for the shout out, in brackets, unnecessary, for caring so much. And um, look, that just hammered home just how much you live by your principles. Um, so I love that anecdote because it really shows how your ideas spread. And Seth, maybe I can just kick off by asking before we get into the meaty stuff today. Um, does that stuff give you a kick? I'm actually getting sort of choked up hearing this. Oh, really? Um, so I'm not sure it's a kick as much as it feels like uh, a magical responsibility. Yeah, um, right. That I, I feel like I won the birthday lottery. I had amazing parents and they taught me that if someone needs connection or door open and you can do that in a way that lets you uh, live your life, then you should, you must. Mm. And we live in community and there are people who would like to tear us apart. And there's uh, a media infrastructure that would like us all to be afraid. And I think that the only way forward is for us to find the others, help the others, connect the others and create a world where we're glad to live. And I don't do that as much as I want to, but to know that uh, the breadcrumbs all add up now and then is um, gratifying. You would get so much correspondence and you would get so much kind of influx. You know, we all are these days. We're just drowning in it. So how do you discern? How do you discern and weave your way and find that, that juicy kind of granular point of connection where you feel that it's going to, it's, it's truly going to connect in the right way. Well, I think I think one of the useful precepts is if you take care of the big things, little things take care of themselves. That, for example, we're not here to talk about money, but if you do the hard work to earn a certain kind of salary, then you don't have to sweat giving someone a better tip when you're at the restaurant because one series of effort to put yourself in a different category makes up for a lot of smaller contributions. So yeah. in the case of managing the inbound, I don't use Twitter, I don't use Facebook, and I don't use LinkedIn because I'm not interested in feeling the thrill of winning an internet interaction at the cost of exposing myself to an endless amount of incoming. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if I find, if I feel, if I have a hint that someone's hustling me, I just walk away from the whole thing. I have no interest. I don't, I've never met someone who wanted to be hustled. I don't want to be hustled, right? That whole do a thing, do a thing, do a thing, then ask for the favor part, not interested. You can I don't smell do it that. Coming. I don't want people to do that to me. Yeah. And on the other hand, sometimes I get a vibe because I see the work someone's done. I see how they're walking through the world. And my hunch, I have no recollection of any of the interactions you're talking about, but my hunch is that I got this note and I've answered 175,000 emails in my time. Please don't send me email. But uh, <laughs> there you were in my email thread. And I was like, oh, yeah, this, this, this. It doesn't cost me very much to reach out and say hi. So I did. Well, you had incredible impact on me because it came at an incredible time writing my latest book, which goes into the the lack of connection that we have in our life. So it was a an So what's the title of the new book? This One Wild and Precious Life. And with this podcast, I want to keep it going. I want to keep the conversation going. And so what I'm doing is I'm making it very easy for myself by choosing one wild idea that a big mind like you has planted into my life. And then we just deep dive and see where it goes. So that's what we're going to do. Now, to get to the wild idea, it did come about when we spoke that time 11 years ago. So you've done your homework. We've got back on the call. I tell you that I've just jumped you know, a taxi queue and that I do this in New York. Whenever I land, there's a queue for about oh, two hours. I'll walk to the front of the queue and I'll offer to pay to go downtown if somebody lets me jump in with them. You said you do the same and you yep. said, ah, that's art, Sarah. And art is a gift that you give to somebody in the hope that it will make life better or make a change for the better for either that person or for life. And then you actually used a wonderful example, and it was this great touch point. You'd done some work with Shepard Ferry, the artist. He'd been sending those posters of Obama with a big hope message all around Manhattan, and he'd been under pressure to charge for these posters. I'm telling your story, of course. Um, And he said, no, 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 this is my gift to the movement. This is what I do. I'm contributing this. Now, you had just got home the night before from his first Manhattan exhibition and his work, and this is sort of the punchline, was selling for between thirty dollars and $100,000 now. And what you said to me was, Sarah, artists give first. And that little phrase, give first, is the wild idea that has influenced me for the last decade because I then went and started up a business that then made a ton of money, got lots of influence, um, got people to quit sugar around the world, and I worked that principle. I ran it for free for two years, then I charged a sort of paywall, um, but 80% of the content was free for people. Five years later, or six years later, a couple of years ago, I shut down the business rather than selling it, and I sold off the assets and gave the whole lot to charity. And I now make my money, this is the beautiful irony, um, from doing public or corporate speaking to banks and financial institutions, wait for it, about how to have a life of value without money. I mean, mm-hmm. the irony is just astounding. Do you still live by that principle? Give first. Well, I'm glad that the irony wasn't what I was fearing, which is that you were a spokesperson for the M&M Mars company and trying to get people <laughs> to eat candy. But leaving that aside, I think we have to get our terms more clear. Mm. I don't think generosity is about lowering your price or giving things away. And 
my friend Brad Feld, who's also working on a Give First movement, um, he and I have backed and forth about this, so I had a little prep. But basically, the word first is a problem mm-hmm. because it implies a long con and a hustle. I just like give. Leave first out. Okay. And so I think when Shepard Ferry was arrested 30 different times for hanging his work in public, I don't think he was saying to himself, that's okay, if I get arrested a few more times, then I'll become a millionaire. He was just saying, there's something I need to share here. And that's that. Yeah. It turns out that if you look at it from the outside, as I was looking from the outside, if you understand systems in our culture, usually people with something to say creatively end up doing better if they withhold uh, gratification early because it gives them a chance to spread their idea. So I think for those of you who are listening to your work early in their evolution of understanding it, they need to focus on the give, not the first part, right? Yeah, yeah. And and then the, the second part is that sometimes the most generous thing we can do is charge a lot. Because money, money is a signal and money is a story. And for anybody who has enough to eat and a safe place to sleep and healthcare, everything after that is a want, not a need. And one of the things we want is status. Another thing we want is affiliation. And we use the story of money to answer a whole bunch of questions about um, where we are and who we are. So uh, if we look at the seats on an airplane, whether it's United or Qantas, 10 years ago versus now, in many domestic flights, first class has gotten smaller and smaller compared to what it used to be. But charging someone extra for a first class seat is actually something the airline does to serve the person they are charging extra. Because the story we tell ourselves, well, my company's paying for this and I'm in front of you, is something we wanted to buy. And when you show up to give a speech for a bank, I hope you charge them. I, I hope do. you charge them a lot. I do. <laughs> because if you don't charge them a lot, they're not going to treat you properly. And if they don't treat you properly, your message isn't going to get through. And so cognitive dissonance kicks in. And anybody who's ever bought a gift for anybody else understands that the price is part of the gift. And so, yeah, I'm with you on all of this, but I just wanted to clarify a couple of the points. I haven't changed my basic opinion about contribution since I started playing with it 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Look, what I'll do is I'll get you to give your quick little um, elevator pitch, not that you're hustling, um, for your latest book, um, the, the Practice, because it brings together a lot of ideas that you've been working on and, of course, that generosity factor as well. So how do you, how do you describe your own book in a sentence or two? The subtitle is why I wrote it. It's Ship Creative Work. And whether you buy my book or not, I don't care. I just need you to ship creative work. Shipping it, because if you don't ship it, it doesn't count. If it's in your head, it doesn't count. Creative, because you're not a cog. You're not just waiting for instructions. You're going to solve an interesting problem. And work, because work is what we call it when you show up, even if you don't feel like it. It's not a hobby. Hobbies are great, but this is not about your hobby. And I think if more of us shipped creative work, we would solve more problems, earn more connection, and make things better. You've just given me a great segue into bringing this all back to where we're at right now. You mentioned in a blog post quite recently that 
the climate change movement or the global warming movement, um, you know, there's a distinct lack of outrage. We've got this cognitive dissonance going on. We're so overwhelmed. And so what we're doing is we're shutting down and distracting ourselves even further with more of the stuff that got us into the problem in the first place. So mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering, you know, you're a marketer, right? You watch people for a living. You understand mindsets. What's going on? Why aren't we activating? Why aren't we rising to the fact that our lives and our children's lives are in peril? There's a lot to say here. Um, 12 years ago, I wrote a a blog post about this um, in which I pointed out that the marketing slogan around uh, the change in our climate is was deeply misguided because global is a good thing and warming is a good thing and global warming is not a good name. I proposed without any irony whatsoever, calling it atmosphere cancer. And, but there are no cancer deniers. There's none, not even in the United States. And um, why does that make people in the movement uncomfortable? And uh, we need to decode a whole bunch of things about how marketing works because marketing is mostly about either affiliation or status, affiliation, who's with me, who am I standing next to, what am I part of, um, and status, who am I better than, who am I above, who's moving up, who's moving down. Those two things don't often work at the same time, but they inform our decisions about almost everything. And the challenge of people who would like us to make a change in our lives is that while the science is indisputable, the marketing uh, has a lot of problems. One, it is largely described as an insolvable problem in the sense of we're going to have to change everything forever. And people don't know what to do with that. People Mm -hmm. would rather hear the sale ends tomorrow. It's boxing day. I better hurry and get to the store. Then we have to change everything forever. Number two is it promises uh, indeterminate benefits and an indeterminate time in the future if we are willing to give up status. And that's a really hard sell because the ratchet of capitalism, which is older than you or I put together, says that that's not what people are going to respond to. And so the remarketing of it needs, I think, to begin with, uh, there is something that we could and should do now, and it will raise our status. And people like us are doing things like this. And perfect is the enemy of good. The answer for me, from a good point of view, is we're not going to solve the problem by recycling plastic bottles. We're going to solve the problem with a worldwide regime of carbon trade. Because as soon as we can put a number on it, capitalists will work really hard to make money from the number. Mm. And making money from the number will ratchet in the other direction. Yeah. And so we only need, I don't know, 10 million humans around the world care very deeply about making that single shift to put in place an algorithm that can last for a long time. But that doesn't feel right compared to uh, upgrade your car from 15 miles per gallon to 20 miles per gallon, particularly if the new car has better acceleration. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We've lived in a culture and I think a lot of people listening, you know, they've grown up um, in a society where firstly, there's been quite a lot of economic stability, especially here in Australia. We've had 30 years of uninterrupted economic growth up until just recently. And secondly, technology has meant that we don't have to sit in any discomfort ever. We are cocooned from it. And so some of the stuff that's ahead of us requires doing what you've been championing for 20, 30 years, stuff like being uncomfortable, um, facing the resistance, doing the work even when you don't feel like it, not waiting for the muse. And I wanted to sort of break it down because myself and others working in the climate, you know, movement, we are baffled, we struggle. Um, I think many of us have got to the point where we do realise that bludgeoning people with facts and science um, is not the way to go. So I think some of the generosity and the giving is I feel there's an antidote going on there because it's the opposite to what got us into trouble, right? So I'm just wanting to ask. Yeah, I, I just want to interrupt. Yeah, though. correct I'm me, sorry. please. So let me let me try an anecdote that I think might decode this for somebody. Um, if it's 1923 and you want to make, 100 years ago, and you want to make money in the car business, here's what you have to persuade the world to do. Pave half of all of Los Angeles and build more than a million miles of roads. Create a worldwide network of coordinated petrol stations that all pump the same kind of gas. Create the biggest industry in the world that pumps carbon. I mean, the, the list of things you have to do is enormous. Henry Ford did not call a press conference and demand any of those things. <laughs> yeah. What he did was say, if you buy this car, you'll get the girl. Gotcha. That's it. Yeah. Straight up. That easy, right? And then, you know, well, now it starts showing up in movies because it's a great metaphor for so many other things. So now the public wants roads to get built because they need a place to change to, to, to drive their cars. The, the parkway near my house was built by noted racist Robert Moses just so that rich people would have a road to drive to nowhere on, back and forth. That was its only function. So the entire industrial world that we live in was invented because people like Henry Ford had a simple sentence, which is your affiliation and your status will go up if you buy this today. The okay. end, right? Okay. So to propose that we dismantle the ratchet of capitalism and shift our whole mindset that we've been brainwashed on, I fear, I know that that's not going to work. 
the same way that Superman's dad was unable to get the scientists of Krypton to get everyone to abandon the planet. Apart from anything else, we don't have time to change the system. We need to work within it. It's the system that Mm -hmm. we live in, so we need to work within it. I think one of the big resistances, of course, is that if we go back to the give or the give first premise, that there's so much uncertainty in that. The idea of jumping out into the unknown, doing something that we haven't done before, buying a car with the promise it'll get us a girl, how can we make that sort of uncertainty that what I've now learned from kind of doing it over and over is an exciting, thrilling, the whole point of existence kind of feeling, but how do we do it? How do we get no, that's, comfortable? Yeah, that, that, you've got your finger on it. So in the book, This is Marketing and in the Practice, I bo- in both books I talk about the smallest viable audience. The smallest viable audience is the opposite of we need a unanimous vote. And so when I think about your work, you have changed the lives of millions of people in their relationship with food, right? Mm-hmm. That's a home run. Do you know how many people there are on earth? Seven billion which means that one out of a thousand people got changed by you and 999 out of a thousand did not. That does not minimize your work. That makes it really clear how important it is. My books haven't even reached 1% of the people on earth, one out of a thousand of the people on earth. It's enough. So change does not come from everyone. It comes from someone. And if we can go to someone and say, follow this path and it begins to work and the ratchet starts to pay off. They are the ones who will attract the next people, not the core. They will do it. So it's in seven words. People like us do things like this. We have to define what people like us means and yeah. who, what we do. So the, the th- I just did a podcast uh, on Akimbo the other day about the lie of plastic recycling yeah. because It's a double toxic problem. Toxic problem number one is plastic doesn't get recycled. But the other problem was it captured the attention of people like us. And so people like us felt like they were paying their dues when not only wasn't it helping, it was distracting them from what they should have been doing. Exactly. And so we got to pick those, those symbols, those moments. I would say, and I listened to that podcast, I would also say, though, that those symbolic moments can actually get people engaged. And I think engagement begets engagement. Action begets action. So if you feel like you've done something small, then you can probably move on to signing the petition to ensure fracking doesn't happen down the road. I I do feel that it can actually charm people into doing more. Mm, Well, so there's a couple of challenges. First of all, if you find out that the plastic recycling lie was a lie invented by the plastics industry, you're now suspect of all this stuff you're going to hear next. So (laughs) that's problem number one. And problem number two is uh, signing a petition about fracking does not establish affiliation. It does not determine where you are in the culture because it's one and done. That what we see is that real cultural shift happens when we wear it on our head like a hat when we get it tattooed on our arm, when it is who we are and we, people can see it as who we are. So here's an example of how that ratchet works. Um, about, I'm going to say 10 years ago, I don't have the exact date, uh, Elon Musk broke every Mercedes in the state of California. And the way he did that was by launching the Model S. Because instantly, 
every person who was driving a Mercedes, when they found out that the Model S existed, could no longer tell themselves that they were driving the safest, fastest, most reliable, uh, highest status car. So every time they got in their car, they felt stupid. Every time they got in their car, they knew that if they were just willing to spend money, they could go back to feeling the way they felt. Yeah. And within a few years, it was the number one best-selling luxury car in, in California. The trick is he didn't try to change the cycle of status and affiliation. He wrote it. Okay. And that is how we're going to move forward. I wish it wasn't the case, but if we were in small villages, we would have a different plan. But given that we are in this mass media industrialized culture, that's the best I have to offer. What would be sort of a version of that in terms of making the climate movement really start to accelerate in terms of the equivalent of putting a hat on that says, I am this, this is what I do. And then people start to take notice and realize, ah, that's the sexy option. Right. And so, you know, one of the examples in the United States is what Harley Davidson did with a mediocre product. Uh, built a billion-dollar-a-year industry based around leather jackets and the story of feeling like you're an outsider, a connected outsider. It's all of it in one. It's status, it's affiliation, it's uh, figuring out what you're supposed to do next, being part of something. So community, connecting. That's a key part. And one Mm -hmm. of the problems that the climate movement has had is they've allowed perfect to be the enemy of good. And anytime you get three climate people in a room, there's four opinions. And that makes it very hard to say, I want to be part of the circle because the circle can't even agree on what they're supposed to do next. The uncertainty thing I think is a really big piece and I think getting uncomfortable with that. But also the giving thing is actually really hard. Um, And let's talk meta here. We've got nations, of course, um, like the US and Australia who have contributed these CO2 emissions. And we are sort of sitting around going, well, why should I have to? Which is an entirely, I wouldn't say adolescent, but toddler-like response. Well, why should I have to if China and India are producing this many people with this many carbon emissions? And of course, we forget the top, the wealthiest 10% produce more than 50% of the carbon emissions. And we've got we've got a debt that extends for decades um, yep. that we, we need to pay off. So there's this real resistance to sort of um, just giving, just doing what needs to be done, which is the adult response, right? Taking Mm -hmm. responsibility. How do we take on that responsibility? We don't worry what everyone else is doing, but we go and do it anyway. We step into that breach. We go to our edge and get the work done that needs to be done. Right. So we're having two conversations. Let's divide them. The first one is Steve Pressfield calls it resistance. How do we deal with the fear? How do we deal with the need for reassurance, which is futile? How do we deal with writer's block, which is make-believe? How do we find our voice and trust ourselves, no matter what the work is, separate from climate? And naming it is a big step forward to realize there's no gift, there's no muse, there's no such thing as talent. It's a skill. We can earn it. We can put in the time and the effort if we are willing to care enough to make a change happen. So that's one whole conversation. The second conversation is we have all been brainwashed into believing that real change only happens from open markets, free individuals making individual choices. In my country, there's no malaria. The reason there's no malaria 
is because the government got rid of malaria. And I can make a list of 50 things that a centralized, organized, uh, caring government has made better. And I don't believe that some really smart tech people are going to solve this problem. I believe it's going to take coordinated work, which will require marketing, call it propaganda if you want, to get citizens to act like citizens. And citizens exist because there's governments, because if there's no governments, then citizens are just people. But to be a citizen is to be part of something. So a lot of people bought war bonds and a lot of people uh, figured out that the world would be better if there was a level of healthcare that was available. Go down the list. So if you're asking for my prescription, it's simple. Uh, We need to persuade the 5% of people who get the joke, who understand the emergency to figure out how to get government back in the game. Okay. Okay. Which is a big challenge right now, but we're at least inching forward. I I want to bring you into a challenge that I face and it's sort of granular, um, but I'm sure you're aware of it yourself. You're a father. And I I sort of feel that a lot of us are feeling like you can't unsee what we've seen, right? Once you've woken up to the science, the data, everything that's going on, you can't unsee it. And it is terrifying. It is bigger than we've ever faced before. At the same time, we are humans who seek um, almost primitive connection. We have 80 odd years on this planet that we need to live. And there is something in us that tells us this needs to be joyful. This needs to be wild. This needs to have love. And so we've got to have a life. We can't be battling and getting forlorn and despairing the whole time. And I'm just wondering for you, Seth Godin, how do you live it out as a, as a father, as somebody who is deeply caring of humanity? When you lie in, this, in bed at night staring at the ceiling, trying to find a, a space, a place for that, a place of responsibility, how do you go through that? What do you do to talk to yourself um, to be able to get up the next day and and do the work to keep giving? I think there's a really pernicious trap, which is the media that is delivered to each of us every day, bidden or unbidden, has as its prime focus to make us feel insufficient and to make us feel afraid. That 200 years ago, more people were dying younger than now. 200 years ago, there was slavery. There was horrible, horrible living conditions for people all over the world. And it wasn't delivered straight to your face. And so a lot of people didn't know about it. And Steve Pinker has written eloquently about how the world is safer and cleaner than it has ever been in history, in recorded history. And yet, it's super easy to feel helpless and Feeling helpless is a choice because it gives us a way to be off the hook. That being a pessimist means you're not going to be disappointed. That living in one moment of crisis after another is energizing at some level. And I think that if we only get tomorrow once, and if you had to do it over again, how would you live tomorrow differently? Well, maybe we could decide to live it as an optimistic citizen, decide to live it as somebody who isn't going to become obsessed with what the media wants us to know about, but is going to realize there are five or 10 or 50, or in my case, a million people who we get to talk to, what should we say to them? And what doors should we open for them? And that's a practice. And if we can get into that practice, it turns out 
our lives get better. They get better in the short run and the long run. Whereas if we get sucked into this William Randolph Hearst doom scrolling environment of helplessness and consumption at the same time, nothing gets better. So the practice, the engagement in moving towards something that's about giving and connecting and um, so on is the point, right? That's why we're here. I very much have drawn that from your work, but in particular your latest book, The Practice, which the title kind of gives it away. Um, and And I tend to agree. It's got the double whammy approach because when you're engaged, engagement begets engagement and we've got a very good chance of steering the ship towards the right thing. Um, Seth, thank you for being the captain on on that big ship. Oh, hardly. Um, you are, you are. You get people thinking outside of squares and and going to the to the edges of that square, and uh, that's where we need to be. And um, it's been an absolute joy to meet you at that edge here in my morning, your evening. And uh, yeah, good luck with your work. Thank you. Well, thank you for the work you do. Go make this ruckus. It matters more than any of us can imagine which is just an awesome way to finish a big chat if I've ever heard one. Go make this ruckus. And do it by working to a simple, unifying principle that will make a world where you're glad to live. Seth had left me with Give First a decade ago. I reckon I couldn't have built my business and write the books I did without it. But now that idea can be simplified and unified even further. Give. Just give, and it's the whole point. I once applied it to creative production, and I guess I still do, but now I apply it to my part in the climate crisis, which is in desperate need of a marketing overhaul because the current approach, it's just not working. I think his seven words for marketing tough ideas were people like us do things like this. So, like, cool, happy climate fighters like us do things like give freely and creatively. People like us, we give a shit. Perhaps we could get the T-shirt or the cap made up. I mean, maybe I'll go off and do something like that soon. It's also, Seth says, and I love this, a magical responsibility. That if someone needs connection or a door open and you can do that in a way that lets you uh, live your life, then you should, you must. I don't know about you, and maybe it's because I'm an A-type who's a dog, a total dog with a bone when it comes to responsibility. But this simple idea to just give, you must, and it's a magical responsibility, it makes me feel light and expanded. Oh, and we need to stop the doom scrolling. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.